Turn with me now in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 40. I'm going to read this morning from Psalm 40. And it will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage. Our sermon this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10. I'll be reading and preaching from verses 1 through 9. But to understand what is happening there in Hebrews 10, we should read from Psalm 40. So hear now the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your law, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified, but I am poor and needy. If the Lord thinks upon me, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Amen. This is a psalm that speaks very personally and intimately to us as psalm singers. That when we read a psalm like this, we can feel it align with our life experience. Yet we are told in the scriptures, specifically in Hebrews chapter 10, that this psalm belongs first and foremost to Jesus Christ. 
that when he came into the world, this was one of the psalms he was singing. It was a description of his thoughts and his feelings as he went about his earthly ministry. To consider how that works and how that applies to our lives, let's look at that passage. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Our sermon series in the book of Hebrews has reached chapter 10. We'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 9. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. Hear again the word of the Lord. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible... That the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously, saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and, of sin off- and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Amen and amen. In chapters 1 through 9, the Holy Spirit has been giving us this singular lesson in multifaceted form. The singular lesson is Christ is superior. The multifaceted form is that He is superior in His person. He as a person is superior to all the angels who spoke to our fathers in Genesis. He and His person is superior to Moses, who gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. And he in his person is superior to Aaron and all his descendants who served as priests of God in Israel for all those centuries. But what is more, Jesus is not merely a superior person. The Holy Spirit has argued likewise that he is doing a superior work. He has brought forth a superior covenant. That is, he has brought us into a better relationship with God, actually reconciling us to God. Secondly, he's done a superior work in his having a building a superior tabernacle. He hasn't built a tent of animal skins and wood that inhabits a place in the desert. He is building a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But thirdly, He has a superior work, and that he offers a superior sacrifice. 
And it is on that sixth and final point, on that third and final point, that we now come. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, we are introduced to the idea that Jesus, being a superior person, having a superior work, is presenting specifically a superior sacrifice. He actually removes sin. And he actually replaces it with righteousness. It is a superior sacrifice in every way. And so, my friends, let us believe in him. And let us live in him. Look with me at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The Holy Spirit here argues that the law had a set of sacrifices which were to be offered annually. In fact, we know from the law that it wasn't merely annual. In the Day of Atonement, in the Feast of Passover, there were in fact annual sacrifices. But what is more, there were sacrifices on the new moon every month. There were morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices every day. And there were sacrifices according to the sins which the people committed. There was a constancy as well as a perpetuity to the sacrifices that were made. (coughs) Pray for my voice. The law's sacrifices, both by their constancy and their perpetuity showed that they were but a shadow, a similitude to the reality. They weren't the very image of goodness and of good things, but had a symmetry to it. Just as when you stick your hands in front of the flashlight and make a little elephant on the wall, you have not actually made an elephant. It doesn't eat grass. It doesn't trample on little sticks. It doesn't trumpet. It's not an elephant. It will not be hunted by anyone. It is the shadow of an elephant. It has the shape of it, the outline of it. So likewise, the law's sacrifices have the shape of goodness. They, they communicate us to us the reality of a sinner in need of atonement. Of sin in need of sacrifice. But it doesn't actually provide that atonement or that sacrifice. It provides the shape of the gospel. But not the gospel. It doesn't have the color. The texture. It is a pencil sketch. By which we can grasp the fundamental idea. But it is not the full image Painted in all of its depth and glory with all of its color and dimension. In this way, the Holy Spirit calls us to remember that perfection, a specific word in the book of Hebrews that doesn't mean sinlessness. Perfection for the scriptures here in Hebrews means the union of our justification and our sanctification. Perfection, as we saw in chapters 6 and 7, means the ability to translate repentance into righteousness. 
Perfection here means the proper result that God is looking for. Sacrifices in the Old Testament couldn't do that. They had the shape. They had the message. But they didn't have the reality, the full image, the color. And so, friends, we must learn likewise. That even at our best day, with our finest piety, with our purest efforts, all the righteousness that we produce in our strength here on earth is as filthy rags. It is at best a shadow of the righteousness we need. As Puritans were fond of saying, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Christ. Even our repenting of sin is marred with sin. Even our singing of psalms is marred by sin. Even our listening to sermons, even our preaching of sermons is marred by sin. We need a greater sacrifice than one we can provide. The Holy Spirit to to seal up this sense of guilt and helplessness in us impresses upon us the imperfection of these older sacrifices in two ways. First, in verses 2 and 3, he tells us that they could not atone or achieve forgiveness. For then they would not have ceased to be offered, would they not? Would they not have discontinued? If the animal who died actually resulted in forgiveness of sin, why did another animal have to die? If this morning's animal did the job, why is there this evening's animal? If last month's animal did it, why do we have to kill another one this month? If the animal actually got forgiveness achieved, why do we need another animal? The answer is, is because the animal isn't doing it. For worshipers once purified, if then purified, would have never been, would have had no more consciousness of sin. There would have been no more guilt. There would have been no more shame. There would have been a cleansing of the consciousness of the worshiper. A purification resulting in obedience. In verse 3, there would have been sacrifices, to the contrary, which stand as a reminder of sins every year. That is to say, far from it that the animal sacrifices actually turned the worshiper into a righteous, obedient servant of God to the opposite, the the sacrifices simply accumulated a sense of guiltiness. It simply stood as a reminder that atonement was yet necessary. Another sacrifice was coming. In this way, when the Israelite brought an animal into the tabernacle and to the altar to be sacrificed, It was saving only insofar as the Israelite touched that animal and said, You will die now. But it is not you I need. It is the one you represent. And if the Israelite by faith believed not in the Lamb, but in the Lamb of God, who is yet to come, then that sacrifice could be rightly called atonement. But there was no forgiveness inherent in the animal. Propitiation, the pleasing of a holy God, the satisfaction of his wrath and justice against sin was not in that animal. 
It couldn't do the job. But secondly, the insufficiency in verse 4 is that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away such sins. The Holy Spirit, by saying it is not possible, is noting a categorical exemption. It could have never worked. It never would have worked. It's not possible. It was not presented ever from the beginning as the solution for sin. But as rather as a communication, as a sign, as a, as a way to reveal the coming solution for sin. It's not possible. It says specifically the blood of bulls and goats, calling to our mind the Hebrew reality that blood was not to be drunk or eaten. For blood was life. And God commanded from Noah's ark on that the blood of animals was to be poured out on the ground before being cooked. You could not take the life of the animal into your body. Isn't it striking to the contrary that Jesus in John chapter 6 says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. In as much as an Israelite could not have the blood of an animal in his body, so you and I must have the blood of Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, in our souls by faith. The life of the animal would not save the worshiper. But the life of Christ does. Now, this could simply be because the blood of an animal is an animal's life. And ontologically, an animal is inferior to a human, right? So maybe the death of an animal, the life of an animal, just isn't ontologically sufficient. To cover the life and death of a human. Maybe. But I think that the Holy Spirit here is saying something far more. For he says at the end of the verse. To take away sin. This phrase the removal of sin. Which is hearkening back to chapter 9. In which Jesus took away sin. Refers to the fact that there is in the blood of Christ. Unlike the blood of animals. A moral superiority. Animals cannot sin. They also can't obey the law of God. But Jesus can. The blood of the animal that splashed the altar in Israel was just the blood of an animal like any other blood of the animal. But the blood of Jesus Christ that has splashed this church, spiritually speaking, is righteousness itself. It is the lifeblood of a human who has sinlessly, faultlessly, flawlessly obeyed the every will and word of God. Thus we see the imperfection of the old sacrifice. It couldn't cleanse the conscience. It couldn't remove the guilt and the shame It couldn't result in actual forgiveness that liberated the worshiper. But what is more, it couldn't supply righteousness. It couldn't supply holiness. It couldn't send forth the worshiper 
empowered, equipped, and inspired to new obedience. Because it was a shadow. It had the shape of these things. But none of its image. None of its likeness. None of its flesh and blood and bone reality. Because these truths do not inhabit the sinews of animals. But of humans. Indeed one human. The God man. Jesus Christ. Let's turn to him now. In verse 5. Therefore when he came into the world. By saying therefore the Holy Spirit is gathering up that logic. Therefore. Because the old sacrifices were so insufficient. Because the old sacrifices could not save. They could not remove the guilt of sin. Nor could they add the gift of righteousness. Because they could neither propitiate nor expiate. See, I went to seminary. Because they could not provide satisfaction for sin. Nor could they replace it with righteousness. Therefore, because of that insufficiency, when Jesus came into the world, that is, when the Son of God took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, when He was born of a virgin in a manger. How many of you chose your mom? How many of you chose your dad? How many of you chose your day of birth? Your day of conception? Your hair color, I mean at birth. Your eye color. Wait, you had no control over any of that? You just showed up? And it wasn't your idea to show up? How unlike the Son of God, who sat in heaven high, full of the fondness and the fellowship of the Trinity, worshipped by all the angelic hosts, and chose his birthday. And chose his mother. Who came willingly into this world. At just the right place. At just the right time. Quoting Psalm 40. Now I don't know if the baby Jesus in the manger quoted Psalm 40. At a minimum. The young Israelite Jesus would have grown up singing Psalm 40. And I don't know when it was that the Holy Spirit first stirred in him that he was sitting in synagogue one Sabbath day and they were reading Psalm 40 and they were singing Psalm 40 and he just sat there and went, that I, that's me. Those words, that's how I feel. But that's exactly what the Holy Spirit tells us is happening here. Jesus is singing Psalm 40 Sometime in his youth, sometime in his infancy, childhood, sometime in his young adult life, I don't know when. And the Spirit testified to him, I'm not looking for sacrifice and offerings from you. I'm not looking for burnt offerings and sacrifices from sin from you. You have not come into the world to kill animals. You have not come into the world to present bulls and goats and ox and sheep. I have given you a body. And that is your sacrifice for sin. Jesus grasps through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the truth about his identity and mission. That he has a body which has been prepared by God. 
so that He might give that body on the cross as the lamb and goat and bull we've been waiting for. As the very image of the sacrifice that we have wanted. Not the shadow, not the likeness, the substance. God does not desire dead animals from Jesus. God does not have pleasure in the slaughter of His creation in which He said, this is very good. No, what He desires and the thing in which He has pleasure is His Son. This is His Son, His only Son whom He loves, of whom He said at His baptism, with Him I am well pleased. He said again on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is the one I love with whom I am well pleased. And he crucified him. He he desired the offering of Christ and Christ's body. Because that actually forgives sins. That's actual atonement. Not the shape of atonement. Not a similar thing to atonement. That's the reality of atonement. God's son dying for God's enemies. You can't make this stuff up. Humans aren't that good. This is a divine story. Only God has such ways. Only God has such thoughts. That God comes into the world to offer himself a sacrifice for sin. His body for ours. But secondly, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I've rearranged the reading of it in order for you to hear the flow of the logic. Behold, I have come. Again, Psalm 40 represents Jesus as owning his incarnation. As Jesus taking lordship over his incarnation. Behold, I have come. This is, this is what I have chosen to do. There's a willfulness and an intentionality to Christ coming into the world. He wasn't plan B. He wasn't an accident. He didn't sit on his hands in the board meeting until everybody else had failed to volunteer and say, all right, I guess I'll do it. He was willing. He was eager. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He has come to offer himself a sacrifice for sin. To present his own body which God had prepared for him on the cross for sin. But what is more to fulfill that final will of God only after he had fulfilled all the other will of God. Why does Jesus get baptized according to his own logic? He says to John, to fulfill all righteousness. That Jesus has come to do everything his father asks of him. To fulfill every ounce of desire and will that is in his father's intention and heart. Jesus has come into the world to do the will of God. To this end, in verse 7, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. All those scrolls that Jesus saw lined up at the front of the synagogue, all those scrolls that were read Sabbath after Sabbath, 
all those psalms that were sung Sabbath after Sabbath, the whole volume of it, Jesus said, every one of them speaks of me. Here's a wonderful exercise for you this afternoon and this evening. Study every time Jesus explains the Old Testament. You will find he has one hermeneutic. It speaks of me. Paul says the end of the law, meaning the goal, the purpose, the reason for the law, is Christ. The volume of the book, the sum total of the Old Testament scrolls, the point of the law and the sacrifices is to say something about Jesus. To communicate Christ to us. When we see that law of righteousness, we need to see that Jesus is that righteousness that the law is pointing us to. Our righteousness is found in Jesus. To this end then, the law is a shadow and Jesus is the image. The law is a shape and Jesus is the fullness. The sacrifice is in anticipation. Jesus is the feast. This is the relationship between them. Their insufficiency points us forward to His sufficiency. He is the removal of our sin by His death on the cross. But He is also the imputation of His righteousness to us. Our justification is in Christ. Our sanctification is in Christ. Our adoption is in Christ. Our glorification is in Christ. Now as we're coming to this climactic moment, and I wish I had the voice and the energy to make it sound more climactic than I am making it. But as we come to this traumatic climax in in Hebrews chapter 10, we're six times... Six times the Holy Spirit has said, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. He has begun to introduce us to what comes next in the rest of the book. Chapters 11, 12, and 13, the second half of chapter 10, in which he begins to apply that truth to us. We see some hint of this in the final verses, 8 and 9. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offering for sin you do not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. The Holy Spirit is reasoning that there is theology in the syntax and grammar of Psalm 40. And all the English majors rejoiced. Yes? Word order matters. Sentence structure matters. In verse 8, the Spirit says, previously he denounced the sacrifices and offerings. In verse 9, he says he then follows that statement with a declaration of, I have come to do your will, O God. By this, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that the structure and flow of Psalm 40 is intentional. That we must remove the first system in order to establish the second. There must be a denouncing of the prior way of life. 
in order to obtain the present way of life. If you're going to have a relationship with God based on grace, you're going to have to give up works. It's the way it works. If you're going to live in the righteousness of Christ, you cannot live in self-righteousness. They are mutually exclusive. There is a progression of the ideology. There is a flow to the theology. That to be rooted in Christ is the only way to grow up into the fruits which come from Christ. Beloved, let us understand rightly the Spirit's logic. The sacrifice that he was pleased with, that he desired, is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I must disavow all other sacrifices, save that one, in order to be saved. But having then laid claim of the sacrifice of Christ, I can then pray with Christ. I have come to do your will, O God. To me, your law is my delight. Obedience cannot circumnavigate the cross. It grows up out of it. I want you to see this in two ways. One is my preaching professor in seminary, Denny Pruto, trained us that we should always have six, he called them moves, points, whatever. Six points. You guys have noticed in my little outline, there's always six sentences, right? There's actually seven, but that's near here and there. And the, and the six that are here at the top, those are those six Plutonian points. You know why it had to always be six, Denny said? Because then you could keep each one to five minutes and be done in 30. That's actually what his logic was. There's a way to keep the preacher able to tell time. The seventh sentence is always the main point of the sermon. If you get one thing and only thing, this is the thing I want you to get. The other thing Denny taught us is that the first half should always be an indicative, a statement of fact, a gospel truth. Here is something true about Jesus. The second should always be an application. And here's what you should do about it. And then he would sternly warn us, never invert them. It is your faith in Christ that makes you a faithful Christian, not the other way around. It is truth that leads to obedience. I don't know where Dr. Pruto got his ideas. I know that they follow beautifully in the book of Hebrews. Three things we should know about the superiority of Jesus' person. Three things we should know about the superiority of Jesus' work. Come, let us consider the application. The application is, let's let our lives be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Conformed to the law of Christ. Let us say to one another, behold, I come to do your will, O God. To me, it is my delight. I love obeying God. Because I have grasped the grace of the gospel I have the power to put off sin, the power to put on Jesus. This is the application of this truth. It's very Pauline. 
Christ has removed your sin. So friends, remove your sin. Christ has replaced your sin with righteousness. So live righteously. And that tension is never to be reconciled by the believer until glory. We live in that tension. Having died to sin, let us put to death our sin. Having been born again to the living God, let us live to God. And let us not reconcile this tension, but live with it in faith. This is the gospel for us today. That indeed, Jesus removes and replaces sin with righteousness. So let us put off our sin and put on Jesus. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for a beautiful day. We thank you for a beautiful word. We thank you for the precious promises that were yea and amen in Christ Jesus. We thank you for a sacrificial system which you gave to our fathers by which they might know you and understand how you would be reconciling them to yourself through your Son. We thank you for the explanation the Holy Spirit has given us in these words that we might understand rightly how to relate to you not on the basis of our works, but Christ's. Not on the basis of our strength, but His. And we pray that you would bear us up this day and this week. That we would denounce our sufficiency. That we would indeed confess our guilt and helplessness as sinners against you. And that we would in turn then profess Jesus Christ the Son of God as our Savior and Lord. That we would believe into Him and be saved and live like it. We pray that we would love your law and study it all the day with hearts swollen with grace and gratitude, eager to do your will. We pray that this would be the truth that transforms us today by your grace and power. This blessing we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.